unmissable stories from around the globe. From the BBC World Service. My happy place, this is who I am. <laughs> Search for the documentary, Lives Less Ordinary, and Amazing Sports Stories, wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello there and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. My name's Ed Butler. Today, President Joe Biden may be lagging behind in the opinion polls, but is he winning some impressive results in terms of campaign donations? Could finance be the key to his election bid, re-election bid? Also, a former Chinese property developer lays into his country's efforts to save its property sector and how law enforcement may have brought down one of the world's biggest cybercrime gangs. Because they're government agencies, if they just figured out where the infrastructure was located and issued warrants to gain access to them. Law enforcement has the ability to do that. They don't necessarily need to hack things. More on that later in the show. Now, South Africa has set the date for its next election. President Cyril Maramaposa today scheduled the country's return to the polls for May the 29th. The news coincidentally coming just as the finance ministry also revealed the latest unemployment figures. They didn't make for happy reading. Officially, South Africa has the world's worst jobless rate, with more than 32% of all eligible workers now unemployed. People like these current and recently graduated college students. Uh, It leaves me with a feeling of hopelessness because I won't be able to get employment anyway. They do make me numb. I feel very hopeless. I am actually a final year student. And I ask myself when I graduate next year, will I ever, ever get a job? The feeling that it creates the most is just a sense of anxiety, anxiety about the future. To be honest, it does create a bit of anger too because we're pretty much just sitting in this bottomless pit we were waiting for things to get worse education is like a lift it will get you from point a to b but it won't open the door for you i think now it it is based on who do you know it's not like we are not willing to do the work we are but there's no job to do so what is behind the latest jobless rate well i've been speaking about this to Shanti Pai. He's a senior economist with PricewaterhouseCoopers in Johannesburg. It's certainly a very big deal um, in South Africa because actually one of the things that we've been looking for is some lift in unemployment because we had just recovered from the COVID-19 crisis. They took a very, very long time to actually recover the jobs. And so one of the key things that we've um, been struggling with is that we have one uh, area in which you can actually grow the economy but not recover the jobs, and that's something of great concern. And this is somewhat of a reversal in the sense that now we see that actually even those small jobs that had actually been recovered have now been reversed. But worse than that is that, of course, this happens at a time where, you know, you should be seeing a little bit of a pickup because that's, you know, the Christmas period, festive season. Yeah, I mean, in the holiday season, normally there are casual jobs or temporary jobs which which ease things. Yeah, Which ease things up a little bit. But also we know that uh, the following quarter is a time when we have a lot more young people coming out of high school, some of them will not be going into higher education, but will be looking for opportunities for employment. And those will be another uh, bunch of people who now join the job-seeking environment. And that's something of a concern. 
Okay, so this area, we've got social services, construction, agriculture, trade sectors. These are all areas where the job market squeezed. Is anything going right in South Africa's economy? I mean, where are the jobs? <laughs> this is a very, very important question. And it seems that, look, one of the things is that it's very, very difficult to see anything going right, especially because our most businesses are struggling. So where you are, and you've just counted it, the construction sector is a particularly important sector in South Africa, obviously, because our labor force is relatively without skills. So you are looking for jobs in tourism, you are looking for jobs in construction, you are even looking for jobs in mining and in these areas we are seeing actually that we are not seeing the growth from tourism and certainly agriculture. So what should this government or any government be doing to assist the state of the South African economy more generally I guess not just employment but how does South Africa turn it around? The most important thing is to actually give um, investors some confidence that things are actually going to get better and one of the key areas in that is actually making sure that we have the in right investment in that in economic infrastructure our energy problems are a particularly serious thing. This is something uh, we always talk about isn't it the load shedding that which load is shedding, which absolutely. is basically just there isn't enough power in the uh, South African grid economy. to support Absolutely. the industrial sector, which of course is where the jobs come from. Even small businesses that are supposed to deliver the jobs in the informal sector are struggling because they would have to invest in alternative energy, and that's not a very cheap uh, exercise. You have found in some of the bigger businesses that they've spent a lot of money then providing for themselves alternative energy, but that obviously tells us that the cost of doing business has now increased, and that's never a good thing to inspire investor confidence. So that's the current economic situation. But this underperformance for South Africa has been a talking point for many experts over many years. And political analysts are now saying that it could lead to the ruling African National Congress losing its governing majority for the very first time this year. Bongiwin Dondo is a gender activist. She runs a social and gender justice funds program in Johannesburg. We have an unemployment crisis that affects mostly young people and women. Even those that fall out of that demographic tend to have very precarious jobs, the kind of jobs that don't provide any form of security. And because our economy is very much labor-oriented, Unemployment in the township compounded a lot of the social ills that we already see. A lot more people living below the poverty line. It's contributed to the very high crime levels that we see in our communities, particularly in the peri-urban areas, in the townships. We generally see a lack of you know, social cohesion. You mentioned the crime. 84 murders a day I was seeing in South Africa. I mean, extraordinary levels of violence, alcoholism, drug misuse, all of that. And... As you say, it is concentrated in certain areas. And when it comes to the the unemployment, women do have higher levels of unemployment than the men, don't they? I think there's a lot of issues. First of all, if we go back in time, I think there's a lot that's happened within global economies where there's been a shift in what employment means, what jobs mean, you know, the kind of jobs that um, are available. There's been a lot of technological advancements that have put a lot of people out of jobs, um, automation, mechanization, robotics and AI. So all of those, I think, have contributed. We also have, I think, an education system that's very much oriented to, you know, young people finding jobs. 
And I think um, if you look globally, there's an attempt to shift away from, you know, jobs being the mainstay of how people earn livelihoods um, into more entrepreneurial focus. If you look historically, the formal employment was actually artificially created in Southern Africa. You know, the mining jobs, the agriculture jobs, all of them were as a result of black people being forced into a cash economy from what used to be subsistence farming and other forms of livelihoods. To that extent, I think one needs to understand that unemployment can't be the only thing we focus on from a policy perspective. I think many of the jobs, in any case, allow people to be food secure, you know, allow households to escape food insecurity. And so we need to be more creative about how we create opportunities for people to earn a living differently. Clearly, there's also a lot of political issues, you know, political will, um, you know, in how the economy has been managed or mismanaged over the years. Do do people blame the politicians? I think to to an extent, yes, um, because there, there is an expectation that Uh, the politicians will create an environment um, that will create jobs. Uh, And I think there's even an expectation that government will play a role in in, in job creation, um, which I think, you know, if you look again, you know, globally, you know, governments are are not necessarily in the business of creating jobs. But we've seen in South Africa through the presidential uh, employment stimulus, we've seen um, jobs being created in the social services sector through the social employment fund. But all of those jobs are not sustainable jobs. And that's the problem. It is three decades now since the first multi-party elections after apartheid ended in South Africa. Does it feel like a turning point? Do you feel like the fact that now you're hitting one in three official unemployed there in, in South Africa, there is a point at which the old faith in the orthodoxy, which has been the, the African National Congress, is, is beginning to fall apart? I think you're right, but I think I think there's a general lack of confidence in the political you know, party system delivering on ending uh, poverty in South Africa. And, and, and that, I think, is going to be reflected in what happens as we go to the polls later in the year. My own sense is that people have for a long time put faith in government, in creating an environment for, for employment creation, but we're never going to go back there. We're never going to go back to, you know, the time when the job market was able to, to accommodate a lot of people. The world has moved from your your big multi multinationals. The world has moved from big corporates, and and there's been a lot more emphasis even within the ANC government policy. There's been a lot more emphasis on in more small businesses on entrepreneurship. But I I don't think we've had enough of that. And I think there is no party that's going to be able to deliver on creating jobs at the at the scale that we see unemployment at. The South African community activist Bongiwe Ndondo. President Joe Biden's US re-election campaign and his Democratic Party allies have raised more than $42 million since January. His campaign also has a $130 million cash-in-hand uh, fund as they prepare for the likely general election against Donald Trump. The fundraising figures were released by Biden's campaign today. They were propelled by small-dollar donations, we understand, giving money online. Joining me now is uh, Larry J. Sabato. He's the director at the 
Centre for Politics at the University of Virginia. Hi, Larry. Um, tell us now. I mean, this is the day when both parties have to announce kind of what they've received in the latest uh, uh, period, isn't it? Um, the report's out that Joe Biden has done almost as well as Donald Trump did in 2020 at this time. Yes, that's uh, correct. Of course, Trump was the incumbent president then and Joe Biden is the incumbent president now. But the major difference between the two is that Joe Biden is not having to divert uh, tens of millions of dollars from his campaign in order to support what is virtually a law firm defending him in four uh, separate trials and 91 counts. Yeah, and indeed to fight a, a primary campaign to some extent against uh, against a rival. Yes, although I think it's pretty clear that Trump will be the nominee so long as he's healthy. Now, the majority of reports um, are saying this is partly because of, as you say, the court cases. But I mean, does it create a wider concern for the Republicans? After all, he isn't raising anything like the amount he did uh, in the run up to the 2020 vote. You're saying that was just incumbency gives you an advantage in that situation. Incumbency certainly is a big piece of it, but I have to agree with you. I think the Republicans should see this as yet another sign that the Donald Trump of 2024 was not the Donald Trump of 2016 and particularly 2020. So they have some problems to solve themselves. They have a lot of small dollar donors. Uh, but at some point, the negative headlines can override that. Yeah, there is a feeling. I mean, some people would say on the Democratic side that the Democrats are underperforming in the polls, that Joe Biden uh, could expect perhaps a bigger turnout, particularly among younger voters who uh, who certainly turned out in 2022 in the midterms. And that therefore, I don't know, all of this talk of him being too old, of him slumping, of him being out of touch, um, is perhaps overplayed in the current political uh, discourse. It is overplayed. It's a serious concern. Even Biden admits that. The truth is both Biden and Trump are too old if you get right down to it. It's a very stressful job. But here we are, and we're not going to do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. And neither one of them is going to get any younger. So it makes more sense to focus on issues that they can affect, including the economy, including their influence, if they have some, on uh, Bibi Netanyahu and others uh, in the Middle East. And in the end, I think that age will recede as the deciding factor. Other issues are going to be more prominent as long as both candidates stay healthy. And a quick word about money, um, which is, after all, our agenda here on a business show. I mean, to what extent does campaign finance determine things? It helps always to have more money than the other candidate. At the same time, you've got a situation here where we have the first rematch since the 1950s with Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson. And because of that, and because especially Trump is who he is, 100% of the American public that's going to vote knows a lot about Donald Trump and knows a lot about Joe Biden. And you can spend all the money in the world. You probably aren't going to change the basics of this election. Professor Larry Sabato, thank you as ever. Who were the Black 14? 14 football players who were at the University of Wyoming in 1969. 14 student athletes who paid a heavy price for planning a show of support against racism. It hit the campus like wildfire. Some of them was getting death threats. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. It was a complete surprise that he kicked us off the team. What are we going to do with our lives? How are we going to get our degrees? Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Now, uh, time for <clears throat> a look at today's other market stories. I'm joined by Ayoko Yoshioka. She's a senior portfolio manager at CFA Wealth Enhancement Group. Hi, Ayoko. Uh, uh, Chipmaker NVIDIA um, has opened a new tab. It's replacing Tesla, uh, but it's most traded stock by value on Wall Street. Tell us about this. Yes, NVIDIA's valuation has definitely skyrocketed so far this year. Uh, their market cap is greater than the entire energy sector uh, in the S&P 500 um, and is now um, you know, neck and neck with the likes of Alphabet or, or Google. It is extraordinary, isn't it, the rise in this stock? I mean, just put this into some context. A year and a half ago, probably not many of us certainly out there beyond the the specific tech world knew much about this company. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the aha moment for everybody was when uh, chat GPT came uh, to the foray of, of everybody's computer screens and everybody saw what um, artificial intelligence could potentially do for them. Um, it, it's it's really been the impetus for why uh, NVIDIA continues to uh, do well. It, they are the provider of these artificial intelligence uh, chips that, that keep uh allow things to run in the background. Okay, a quick word then for the other big story perhaps of the day, Capital One Financial's potential deal uh, with Discover Financial. This would be an absolute blockbuster, wouldn't it, if it goes through? Talk us through what's involved here. Absolutely. It would be the third largest uh, you know, credit card provider behind Visa and MasterCard. Um, and so this merger would, would really be a great deal for for the combination of the two and allow for a more competitive environment in the credit card space. Um, I think it impacts MasterCard a little bit more versus Visa, just in terms of um, how the client bases work out. Um, and, and MasterCard was down a, a little over three and a half percent today um, on this news, but um, and Visa was down about 1.2 percent. But both uh, Discover and even Capital One, um, which started the day down, uh, ended up the day uh, in positive territory and Discover was up uh, over 12.5%. So very uh, interesting news in, in the financial space today. Yeah, indeed. Although I guess we still have to wait whether the regulators will approve. There are those in the political space who seem to be pushing back against that deal. We'll have to wait and see whether it's confirmed. Thanks very much for now. Ayako, Ayako uh, Yoshioka there um, of Wealth Enhancement Group. Now, China has made a record cut to its mortgage-linked loan rate. Believe it or not, that is important. This is uh, government policymakers attempting to provide more targeted support for the country's property sector. The central bank has cut a key five-year loan rate, which affects borrowing costs for households, by a quarter of 1%. It is the sharpest cut since that rate was introduced five years ago. And the property sector has been seeing sharp falls, of course, for more than a year now, as leading companies like Evergrande reveal their massive debts and their inability to complete building projects. I've been speaking about all of this with uh, Desmond Shum. He's a former billionaire property developer himself who left China some years ago, disillusioned by the Communist Party's inability, he says, to reform its economic model. I assume that their hope is uh, reducing the cost of borrowing. They will inspire more people to take out mortgage and buy housing. And there is no necessary, I mean, there is no necessary demand to buy houses. I mean, 80%
of people's welfare in housing. We all know there's an oversupply. Marginal reducing cost of buying is not going to change the fundamentals of the market. To some extent, haven't they? In recent months, the authorities have been allowing um, some of these big property companies to, uh, well, to accept their losses. Do, do you think that they are moving in the right direction in terms of rationalising the property market, the overinflated property sector? I don't see them rationalising the market. I, actually, I, I, what, I see what they're doing actually is kicking the can down the road. So what they have been doing the last uh, few months is if you are on the list, the banks are are permitted to lend you money to finish off your project. But it doesn't address the fundamental issue of oversupply. And then by doing that, you actually dragging the financial sector into the trouble, throwing good money after bad. What should they be doing right now? (laughs) I mean, the reality is that if you actually want to deal with the problem, you need to swallow the, the bitter pill, which is let the developer that should go bankrupt go bankrupt. You should allow for a full crash. Well, maybe a managed crash, but not allowing a crash. It's not, a, it's, you know, in China, you, you can, the government can, can manage everything, right? Right now, even uh, Evergrande, nobody's going out of business. Everybody's either stay put or slowly be still building. Do you think Basically, the government doesn't have a plan now. Well, they have a plan. The plan is like, we don't want to recognize losses. We're going to kick the can down the road. And, and then we'll see what happens. Because ultimately, it's all political. In an environment like this, is anybody willing to take political risks? You know, five years from now, hey, I'm not going to be in a position. Whoever going to take over me, going to deal with it. That's the, their problem. It's not my problem. Every time we have financial problem, we always kick the can down the road. We are used to this, but the economy has fundamentally changed. We're not growing 10%. I mean, people say 5%, but how many people in the world believe that? So kicking the can down the road is not going to solve the problem from this time on. What do you think the real growth rate is in China right now? Pick a number for me. Actually, um, I would say zero up and down, like somewhere in the range of minus one plus two. I would say that's probably the range. It's like minus one plus two, somewhere somewhere around there. The former Chinese property developer Desmond Shum. International investigators reckon they have severely disrupted the activities of the global cybercrime crime group Lockbit, the gang which made its fortune selling encryption tools and with ransomware attacks on governments, corporations and other agencies, has stolen more than $120 million, it's reckoned. But now the hackers have themselves been hacked in a combined British, US and Europol operation. The cybersecurity analyst Alan Liska gave me the details. This is a really big deal. Lockbit is by far the largest ransomware as a service operation And it appears the dismantling of their infrastructure by the NCA and the allies was fairly complete. Uh, Most of the servers are down and offline. They managed to get their hands on a number of the crypto wallets, so where the bad guys kept their money. They also managed to get a list of all of the affiliates. And those are the people that do the sort of the on the ground work of carrying out the actual ransomware attacks. 
They've announced two arrests, and apparently there are three more that are coming. Right. So essentially, the UK's National Crime Agency, along with, we believe, the FBI, Europol and other police agencies, have jumped in um, and have basically, what, hacked the website or the, 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 the kind of the central portal through which Lockbit was coordinating its own ransomware attacks. That's correct. And what we don't know is we don't know if they hacked them, which is what Lockbit is contending, that they took advantage of a vulnerability in the software, or because they're government agencies, if they just figured out where the infrastructure was located and issued warrants to gain access to them. Law enforcement has the ability to do that. They don't necessarily need to hack things. Remind us what Lockbit is most famous for doing. Lockbit is by far the largest ransomware group. And so there are so many examples of things that they've hit. Uh, They hit the International Commerce Bank of China. Um, They've hit dozens of hospitals around the world, including a number of children's hospitals. Uh, They were responsible for taking out the Royal Mail uh, last year. We understand that two Lockbit actors have been arrested, though, right? I mean, to what extent do we think that criminal networks like this one are a joined up group or are they just sort of diffuse people who operate from different countries and connect with each other online? There's sort of two layers to this because when you talk about Lockbit specifically and when you talk about other of the, the other ransomware groups out there, there's the core group which is relatively small. And those are the people that manage and maintain the servers and the infrastructure. And then there are all of the affiliates that and that's their term not ours all of the affiliates that carry out the attacks and that sort of come and go and are in and out of that that ecosystem so these two guys who got arrested one was in poland one was in ukraine but it could easily be that the other key actors might be in russia in india or in china or somewhere else that's correct and we know that most of the core lockpick group are based in Russia. So it's unlikely that they will be arrested. But by arresting the people that they can arrest, they're tightening the net around even that core group that's in Russia. 200 cryptocurrency accounts have been linked to the organization and have been frozen. To what extent then would you, uh, as an expert in this field, hope or, or intuit that this could be a model for further sort of counterintelligence operations against such groups? I think this is the kind of thing that we've been building up toward as the arrests have happened. So you go back to this time last year where there was the dismantling of the Hive infrastructure. There were a lot of lessons learned from that. And then late last year with the dismantling of the ALF-V infrastructure, there were lessons learned from that. And every time, law enforcement keeps building on those lessons. So they spend more time on the servers. They get more intelligence. They do things like grab the cryptocurrency wallets to hit the bad guys in the in their pockets, hit them where it hurts. The cybersecurity analyst, Alan Liska, and law enforcement now tell us that four criminal suspects in total have been arrested in this case. That's it from me, Ed Butler, and from this edition of World Business Report. <laughs> 